being compassionate means taking care of yourself and your child. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean being permissive. It means having some standards about what's healthy, what's wholesome. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 234. Today, we're talking about how to practice self-compassion with Dr. Susan Pollack. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course and membership, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back, my friend. Oh my goodness, what a summer. What a time this is. It's summertime as I'm recording this. And and if you're new, a special welcome. Of course, I want to welcome you especially. Yay. Nice to have you here. Thank you for putting me in your ears. Um, Yeah, this is like a crazy time, this whole 2020 year. <laughs> we didn't know how good we had it, I think, in 2019. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just like connecting with the parents in the Facebook group and listening to you and hearing the struggles. It's so, it's such an intense time. And that's why I'm so happy that we have this amazing episode for you. Um, we're going to be talking to Dr. Susan Pollack. She is a longtime student of meditation and yoga who has been integrating the practices of meditation into psychotherapy since the 1980s. Dr. Pollack is co-founder and teacher at the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at Harvard Medical School and the Cambridge Health Alliance. And she's the author of the new book, Self-Compassion for Parents, Nurture Your Child by Caring for Yourself. And, you know, I think it's really true that none of us really knew how hard it was going to be as a parent. We mess up constantly. But, you know, when we respond to ourselves with harsh criticism and judgment, we really leave ourselves feeling helpless and incapable. It, it's not helpful, even though it's a strong, strong habit for so many of us. And so even though it can feel strange, the practice of self-compassion is essential, essential to becoming a more mindful parent and to really grow your parenting skills and practices. And so today I talked to Dr. Susan Pollack and we talk about, I want you to listen for some important takeaways, how we can tolerate failure better and have more resilience when we have self-compassion. How 95% of us grow up with imperfect parents. And I love this little saying, if you lose it, you can use it. I can't wait for you to hear all about these pieces because they're really going to provide some insight, I know, for you. Um, before we dive in, I want to let you know that I still have a couple, like just two spots left in the Mindful Parenting Teacher Training, and we will be starting in... October, October 1st. So that gives you time to go through the Mindful Parenting course before then, if you're listening to this in real time. Um, so if you're interested and you want to grab one of those last two spots, I'll probably go before the deadline. That's at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash teach. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash teach. Or just reach out to me and ask me more about it. You know, you can DM me on Instagram or wherever you find me on the interwebs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. I'm so, so excited for this program to be moving into its second round and have teachers going out there in your communities. So, so cool. OMG. All right. Um, I know I want you to hear about Dr. Pollock and her self-compassion work and it's so, so, so vital. So let's dive right in. Join me at the table as I talk to Dr. Susan Pollock. Susan, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is delightful. 
I'm so glad you are on. You have so much incredible history uh, with meditation, and I'm so excited. Love, love, love your new book, Self-Compassion for Parents. But I am curious about um, how did you, I I know that you got started meditating when you were just a wee young thing. Is that not true? That is true. And I was in elementary school. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So uh, this was in the Jurassic Age, of course, (laughs) and the story was that I had an aunt in New York City who was a journalist, and she was sent on assignment to cover the first meditation teacher who opened up a center in New York City, and it, it clicked for her. I mean, she was so excited. And then she came, I was growing up in suburban Boston. She came to visit her sister, who's my mother, um, and taught us all how to meditate and how to do yoga. And I was about 10 then. So then it became um, a lifelong passion. And one of the things that's been really compelling for me is to figure out how to teach it in a way that it becomes a passion for others and it just clicks. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes it work for people. That's interesting that you were 10. She must have been a really cool aunt for you to be like, to say, this sounds like a great idea. (laughs) Well, you know, just imagine you're 10, you're growing up in the suburbs, and this very glamorous, um, you know, elegant uh, woman of the world appears on your suburban doorstep. It was compelling. And she was kind of wild and crazy and mm. fun. Mm. So it, it was a compelling package. So it was a different package from mom who teaches mindfulness to a whole bunch of people trying to teach to her 10-year-old in this case, (laughs) currently happening in my world. Yeah. 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 Much more compelling package. Wow. So you've been meditating for a long time and you... um, You've gone into psychotherapy. Do do those pieces um, do those pieces mix for you, meditation and psychotherapy? Absolutely. So, but there's another backstory mm. that's interesting. So, I ended up um, studying religion, going on getting a um, doing an undergraduate degree in comparative religion, going to Harvard Divinity School, and really immersing myself um, in the study of religion. Can I ask what religion you grew up with? I grew up sort of, you know, secular Jewish, like, you know, mm. not not practicing, more sort of social action mm-hmm. Jewish, like my, the rabbi in the temple I grew up in um, marched with Martin Luther King. So it was really about issues of racial equality and, you know, working together. So he, he was an inspiring um, figure. Wow. And um, what happened is I sort of continued my practice of uh, religion is I spent some time in meditation centers and there are a bunch of scandals. Oh, yeah. And there's certainly scandals happening now. And that got me interested in psychology um, because Uh what I was seeing was the underbelly and way the ways that people use power i mean it's very relevant now use control the way women were manipulated um and i got very interested in psychology and in trauma so mm. that i really ended up doing a pivot from the academic study of comparative religion to learning about psychology and at that point I was studying at Harvard. There are a lot of wonderful feminist um, psychologists there, including Carol Gilligan, who's just launching her career. She wrote in a different voice. She was really one of the first feminist psychologists. Um, And then I began studying with the woman who is now considered to be like the mother or grandmother of trauma theory, 
named um, Judith Herman. So mm. I went from being immersed in the world of meditation to being immersed in the world of psychotherapy. Um, so I put the meditation on hold, but then as I was training to be a therapist, I hit a wall with some patients where, and this is sort of so much like being a kid, you're trying to, you know, or being a parent of a young kid, you're saying something and the person lets you know that you really are an idiot. I mean, there's no question about it, but you are utterly an idiot and stupid and everything um, you say is stupid. For me, it was a great training for being a mom. Um, oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, especially a mom of teenagers. Um, and then what happened is I hit a wall. I, I couldn't say anything that was intelligent. I took a deep breath and I thought, well, what, what would help me? if I was feeling this way. And my 30 years of meditation came flooding back. And I said, let's try this. And I did some basic mindfulness exercises and they worked. Mm. And I thought, ooh, I like this. And then of course I didn't want to do any harm. So as a therapist in training, you are always getting someone that you can consult with and supervise you. So I said to my, um, my consultant, my supervisor, can we talk about this? And this is back in the mid eighties when there wasn't research on mindfulness. We didn't even call it mindfulness. We called it meditation and it was weird. <laughs> Make no doubt about it. It was weird. It was like guys with with turbans and 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 no shirt on. Or hard Krishnas. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really, you know, tie dye shirts. I mean, it was really marginal and not respected. And she looked at me like, I'm not joking here. Like I had said, I want to be sleeping with my patients. Oh. And she was horrified and said to me you know, in her snottiest voice, Susan, you can do whatever you want behind closed doors, but I will not supervise you in this. Oh you know, my like gosh. Really, really breaking the rules. Um, so luckily I found some colleagues who were also in graduate school and interested in the dovetailing of psychology and um, meditation and we started working together and writing together and doing conferences together but it was at that point it was really weird and really taboo stay tuned for more mindful mama podcast right after this break we are supported by Biosance. So yesterday I went and took my girls to the beach and I got a lot of sun and all my skin was not feeling so good at the end of the night. And I put on Biosance's squalene and lactic acid resurfacing night serum. And my skin this morning is a lot better, I can honestly say. It's their best-selling serum, and it's a top-selling serum at Sephora. And you wake up to dramatically smoother, softer, luminous skin overnight. It gently exfoliates and resurfaces for smoother, softer texture, helping eliminate daily stressors to your skin. It's clinically proven to produce visible results in a single night. 100% of users saw significant exfoliation overnight. 100% of users showed improvement in the appearance of pores overnight. And 100% of users showed visible reduction in the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles overnight. What's not to love there? It boosts your skin's cells renewal process, gently works with your skin as you sleep. It's an incredibly lovely, luxurious thing to make an essential part of your nighttime routine. It's really gentle enough to use every night, perfectly balanced with 10% vegan lactic acid, powerful enough to produce dramatic results, but gentle enough for daily use. This is really wonderfully sustainable too. The serum combines vegan lactic acid with squalane made for entirely from sustainably sourced sugarcane. So you can get 20% off your next purchase 
with the coupon code HUNTER. So you just go to biosance.com, that's B-I-O-S-S-A-N-C-E.com and use the coupon code HUNTER for 20% off your next purchase. Wow, so now you can look back and say, well, I was very cutting edge. And at the time you were probably like, oh my goodness, you'd think I would have, I've, I've asked this person to like dance around naked in the room. Or, or, or worse. <laughs> yeah, or much worse. Yeah, exactly. But wow. For decades, I was really quiet about my interest in meditation. And you, and now, I mean, I, I know most therapists, it seems like, are either learning mindfulness or are, are to te- you know, learning it themselves so they can teach it to their clients. And, um, you know, now it's, it's, it's gone the other direction where it, it really is pretty, pretty thoroughly integrated now. Yeah. Well, it really gives you perspective on how things can change. Mm-hmm. So how it is, speak, so with this history of meditation, you know, I wonder if you can kind of see because you've been practicing for so long and from when you're a child, but thinking about how, how do you see the way meditation changes the way we see things or the way we think that, you know, thinking about just maybe describing it to somebody who is, is newer to meditation. You know, I really love the teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Um, and she says it so beautifully and succinctly in her book, Real Happiness, that I'm just going to go ahead and quote her. And what she says is that meditation, particularly loving kindness meditation, has the power to change your story. Mm -hmm. So it changes your default. So let's say before um, you were thinking, oh, you know, I'm a loser, I'm a terrible mama, I can't do anything right, Um, you know, I might as well just give up or, you know, run away or, you know, stop being a parent or whatever rabbit hole you may fall into. With meditation, you can say, well, and this ties into self-compassion as well, you know, I'm human, I make mistakes, I'm not perfect all the time, but there are parts of me that are really excellent. And there are parts of me that are really passionate about my kids, caring for my kids. And what would happen if I shift the focus and looked at that rather than um, my drawbacks? Mm -hmm. And that can be life altering for people. To realize that they're they're more than their flaws. Amen. And, and it's this ability to to shift and look. It seems like I think that when it, for me, I've been meditating now for um, you know like for fifteen years or something like that. And um, so I'm a baby compared to you. But anyway, but it seems to me like that it it just gives you this clarity to say, oh, this is the story I've been telling myself rather than just being in the story. And for me, like the metaphor that works really well is like um, the idea of like a waterfall. Like we're before we're just like in the waterfall, we're in the water and all those thoughts and stories and beliefs, we're just in them. And, and meditation kind of gives us this ability to step out in front and be like, oh, this is a waterfall. These are my thoughts. This is what's happening. And that gives us the power to shift it. Exactly. And to extend that metaphor, you don't have to be drowning in your thoughts. (laughs) Yes. You know, you don't have to let all the force of the waterfall take you out. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, let me step back. Let me get some perspective. In fact, one of my early teachers, um, who's wonderful for your listeners are in LA. She started Insight LA. She's so amazing teacher, um, therapist, and um, started meditating when she was in, um, in high school. And she studied seriously this well-known Zen master named Dogen, D-O-G-E-N. Um, and one of the things he taught was how to take a backward step 
And I find that's really useful for parents as well. Like, and using your metaphor, rather than getting, you know, overwhelmed by the force of the water in the waterfall, what would it be like to take a backward step? And using mindfulness, just noticing, okay, what's, what's happening right now? What am I feeling? Oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm angry. And just that moment of stepping back and having some awareness can make a huge difference. Yes. So you can begin to attend to yourself. Oh, I haven't eaten all day. Hmm. Wonder if my blood sugar is low. Let me have something to eat. Mm -hmm. Or I'm exhausted. You know, maybe I need some sleep. So rather than thinking, oh, I'm a bad parent. Amen to all of that. So, so did you, did, did you, do you have children? Two. <laughs> and, uh, and what was it, what was it like for you? So by the time you had children, you'd been meditating since you were 10. I imagine many people would say, oh, Susan, she's been meditating since she was 10. She's studied comparative religion. She's a psychotherapist. She has got this under control. You, you probably said to you, Susan, you're, this is going to be a, a piece of cake for you. And so what was your actual experience like? Because I know it wasn't that probably. It wasn't that. And I don't think I would have written the self-compassion for parents if that was the case. So, you know, just like everyone else, I was very human. I am still very human. <laughs> I would lose it with my kids. Um, and like you, I also had a temper. So part of it was, and you know, like so many people, I didn't have great parenting. Mm-hmm. So, so much of it was learning how to really be a present parent mm-hmm. and how not to lose it with my kids. And as they say in the mindfulness world, how to respond rather than react. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in those early days when I was totally sleep deprived, I would react. And, you know, I would, you know, joke with my kids, mommy's about to lose it. Mommy needs a time out or a time in, you know, mommy's going to hit the roof. Um, So I began to pay attention to the signs when I was going to lose it. But this is the point. The mindfulness helped. But what really helped was the Mm self-compassion. Because I had no idea just how hard it was to be a parent. And if we think about it, being blunt here, mindfulness comes out of a monastic tradition. Mm -hmm. So these monks weren't changing diapers, you know, all day. They weren't running after kids. They weren't breaking up fights. They weren't cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And now, especially with the pandemic, they weren't trying to work and homeschool their kids. I mean, it was a very, very different situation. You know, they had silence in the monastery. What parent has silence? Ever. 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 Yeah. Yeah. We've joked that if the Dalai Lama, like if what would happen if he was sort of stuck at home for three consecutive snow days with a (laughs) five-year-old? And I, I argue that he would, he would get, he would get angry. He would, he would lose it, but he would be very self-compassionate with himself. He'd say, oh, this is very difficult. And he wouldn't shoot that second arrow. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that, and self-compassion is, as you probably know, um, relatively new as a discipline. Kristen Neff really did the first piece of research on self-compassion in 2003. So Um, when my kids were really young, self-compassion wasn't around as a skill. Um, And now I think it's an enormous benefit for parents because when you do lose it, when you hit the roof, um, when you yell or scream or melt down, you can recover and you don't have to hate yourself. So for me, that was the real take home. Like, okay, 
we all lose it and doesn't mean I'm a bad mom and I don't have to hate myself or think that, you know, my kids are going to need 30 years of therapy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We all worry about that. Um, Yeah. I, I think that this, and I'd like to, for you to talk to us about exactly what self-compassion is. We have had Kristen Neff on the podcast way back when, and, but the, I agree that like this piece of, you know, mindfulness is wonderful. Mindfulness for, you know, it does, we know the research, like it helps us reduce our stress response. It helps us lose it less. And that's wonderful. That's great. Um, And it helps us see clearly, but the truth is we're, we're gonna all lose it at some point or another, you know, we can aim to lose it less, but we're not going to be perfect. We're never going to get to that point where we, we're just some floating, serene parent that never makes a mistake. And besides, that would not be a great example for our child who grew up. And it's so funny because I have to, you know, the, to explain that, like, actually, it's, it's okay for you to, to have these mis- mistakes and mess up and ha- have these problems. Because imagine if your child did grow up with some perfect person who never had a temper, never lost it, never yelled, and they grow up as a normal human being and they would think, what the heck is wrong with me? Why can't I be like this this perfect parent of mine? So it's we're all going to be losing it. And 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 self-compassion actually does help us recover more quickly and easily, doesn't it? Exactly. And it helps with resist resilience. And one thing your listeners may take comfort in, and I learned this from one of my mentors, which is 95, if not more, percent of us grow up with imperfect parents. So luckily, there are very few people who have to deal with the shadow of a perfect parent. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and one, one phrase I, I like is, and I use this in my book, is if you lose it, because we all lose it, you can use it. So like, how can you work with what's come up? How can you learn from it? Rather than beating yourself up, how can you just say, all right, I messed up. I'm human. We all messed up. We all mess up. What can I do differently next time? I love that phrase. If you if you lose it, you can. Say it again. If you lose it, you can. You can use it. You can use it. So good. Um, so it's it, Christopher the Mill. It's a teacher. It's a teacher. Like so, this this moment is a teacher, and and it, it's teaching you some lesson, right? Like, what is this little lesson that this moment is teaching you? Exactly. Yeah. And so, was I hungry? Was I tired? Am I expecting too much? And then, then there's also you talk also about your book, in your book about also you know maybe there's unresolved wounds. There's many things that can be coming up in these exactly. moments that we can learn from. Yeah. Like okay, I just lost it because my kid, you know, dumped the spaghetti that I just made on the floor. You know, why did I get so angry? And that can often take us back to early childhood experiences. Were you one of the people who was taught you needed to be in the clean plate club? You know, if you didn't finish dinner, did you have to eat it for breakfast the next day? Oh my God. I remember sitting there in front of a plate of Brussels sprouts that were boiled. Mom, I'm sorry, because I know you listen to all these episodes. So you you didn't make Brussels sprouts very in a very yummy way in the 80s. And they were boiled and they were so bad. And I remember having to sitting there for hours after dinner was done. <laughs> and looking at those Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And probably hating those Brussels sprouts. Just just so you know, I hated Brussels sprouts too growing up because I think people didn't know that you could um Roasting, you know, roasting nice people. And, <laughs> nice and crispy. <laughs> but yeah, so many of us have had traumatic experiences with overcooked vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I think just not to digress too much on overcooked vegetables, but but the boiled summer squash, oy vey, <laughs> was so 
soft and slimy. It was terrible. Yeah. Uh, but there's all kinds of things that come up for people. I mean, for many women, this specter of perfectionism comes up when, you know, when a house is um, dirty or things are messy, it feels really threatening. A lot of people get triggered by the, they're not listening to me thing, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's the dirty house. It's the, they're not listening to me. And for so many women, it can be weight issues, body image issues. Um, I have so many people say, oh, my daughter's put on weight and it drives me crazy. Mm. You know, so if you've been body shamed, that is probably a baggage um, that you carry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you were yelled at for not having a clean room, that may be baggage that you carry. And I find a lot of in, um, not to stereotype too much by uh, gender, but I find that some people find a lot of fathers sometimes many fathers I've, I have noticed in, in mindful parenting anyway, want, ex- expect um, instant responses, you know, instant obedience kind of thing. And that's, that's so, is that, that can be more of like a cultural baggage, right? Like we all kind of have some, we may have personal baggage from our Brussels sprouts, <laughs> and, but we all have some cultural baggage too that we bring into parenting that it's important to st- take a step back at it and look. Yeah. And you're exactly right. Some gender um, baggage where lots of people expect to be obeyed or Mm -hmm. expect um, subservience. So just looking at the dynamics you grew up with and then looking at how they get um, played out with your family is really important. You know, are you expecting your kid to eat all his Brussels sprouts or broccoli, you know, maybe doesn't like the way it tastes. Are you expecting kids to, you know, make their bed every morning and clean up their room? Good luck. Uh, you know, and if you say jump and the kid doesn't jump and you get angry, what is that about? Yeah. Yeah. It's important to check these expectations that, cause we don't even see them. I think sometimes like what I think I didn't see was that I did expect that instant obedience. And I sometimes still find myself expecting that. Whereas, you know, if I asked my, you know, if I asked my daughters to, um, I don't know, put her backpack away or whatever. If I asked my husband to put something away, I wouldn't expect him to just jump up that second and do it actually. But I do expect that often. I find that I notice I'm expecting that from my daughters. Yeah. We have this different, this whole level of different expectation for children that, that I think is very much just sort of in the soup of our culture. Yeah. And um, again, it goes back to really wanting to be listened to mm-hmm. rather than, you know, kids are on a, a different, in a different world in a different sense of time. So they may respond, yeah, mom, I'll put the backpack away when I'm done thinking this thought or when I'm done drawing or when I'm done reading. And they don't see any urgency. And if you step back, again, that backward step, is there really a need for this backpack to be put away this moment? Yeah, or is it just my sense of control in an uncertain world that I want to control something and therefore it's the backpack? Yeah. You know, so what what's going on for you? And that's where mindful awareness comes in. Like, oh, okay, I'm feeling, you know, frazzled in this uncertain world and having a neat living room makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, this is my stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, you know, how to work constructively with it. Like, okay, honey, doesn't need to be put away, but let's say you're working on telling time. Let's see if we can have it put away by three o'clock. Can you tell me when three o'clock is? 
or I mean, whatever. So to try to turn it into a game mm-hmm. rather than you controlling your child, it's like, okay, let's play together. Let's turn this into something that works for both of us. So it's really about cooperation, collaboration, having some fun with it rather than losing it and yelling at the kid about the backpack. Because then the kid's going to look at you like, gee, did my mom just turn into an alien? Why is she losing it? Because I'm not putting my backpack away. Mm-hmm. Or and, they're so used to it that they, yeah. they're disconnecting from it. Yeah. And um, I'll sort of tell you the equivalent of your Brussels sprout story. I had a mother who, for some reason, insisted that I wash the kitchen floor and wax it and would freak out if it wasn't done in a timely fashion. And I'm like, what was the urgency? You know, so I, <laughs> I, I think being compassionate, I think we all get a little crazy about some stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how can you have perspective on what triggers you? You must have felt like Cinderella. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about self-compassion. Uh, you know, obviously we, we talked about that first step is mindfulness. Is just being aware of the thoughts, being aware, maybe take, taking a step back and being aware of what are the triggers. Is it, you know, is it really about these, you know, these, this backpack, these Brussels sprouts, or maybe something else is going on. So that's, our, that's sort of step one, right? Right. So let me guide you through the steps and then I'll zero in on what makes sense to me because it's really very simple. So the first step is just noticing like, oh, okay, I'm having a reaction here. What's going on? And then the second step is just realizing what Kristen Neff um, calls common humanity. Like, I'm not the only mother father person in the world who loses it at times like if i were to think about it there are probably a few million people in the world right now who are struggling with a child Mm -hmm. literally yes literally literally and then it's like oh okay it's not personal that my daughter's not putting her backpack away and that i'm getting angry And then sometimes you can just take a deep breath, like, oh, all right, this is the territory of being a parent. Mm -hmm. You know? It's just how it works. It's just how it works. And then the third step, and I really like to tweak this, is, okay, can I be kind to myself? And a lot of people can't. I mean, especially, I find especially people grow up in difficult families or have background of trauma, they don't feel worthy of kindness. So then again, taking, dialing it back, taking a backward step, you can say, all right, well, can I imagine that maybe sometime soon I'll be able to be kind (laughs) to myself or forgiving of myself or understanding that everyone loses their temper, mm-hmm. you know? Because for many people, responding with compassion feels like it's going to happen in another life. Like, are you kidding? Maybe in the next millennium, I'll be kind to myself. So just saying, well, maybe in time, I'll learn to respond kindly to myself. Now, what do you say to the people who are worried about responding with kindness to themselves because they're worried about letting themselves off the hook. They're worried that if I accept my, that I have a temper, then what am I'm just giving up? I'm just going to be one of those people who yells and has a terrible relationship with their child. I don't want that. You know, I can really imagine many people say that. Yep. Many people say that and many people misunderstand compassion. So they think that it's about being indulgent. Like, oh, you know, if I respond from compa- with compassion, that means I'm going to let my kids stay home from school, not do their homework, 
you know, and watch Netflix all day and have chocolate cake for an ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Of course not. No. Being compassionate means taking care of yourself and taking good care of yourself and your child. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean being permissive. Uh, it means having some standards about what's healthy, what's wholesome. So that's a very common misunderstanding. And I think the best way to understand compassion, and this is the definition I like, which is how would you treat a friend? So let's say your friend is having a hard time because her kid isn't using the analogy we've been using, you know, cleaning up, putting the backpack away, um, eating vegetables. And what would you say to a friend if a friend came to you and said, Hunter, I just feel like the worst mom. I just yelled at Billy because Billy wouldn't eat his Brussels sprouts. What, what would you say? Yeah, it's hard. It's frustrating. And we all do that sometimes. Yeah. And then hearing that, how do you feel? Yeah. I feel, aha, yeah. uh -huh, relief. I'm not yeah. alone. You're not alone. But what we do instead is we say, you're no good. You're a bad parent. You're going to have a spoiled kid. What's wrong with you? And then we go down into this rabbit hole of shame and blame and then we get stuck there and then we get depressed or anxious why do so, we do that why do we do that susan do you know well the best explanation i have heard for that is what we call the negativity bias mm -hmm. and the person i think who really explains the negativity bias incredibly well is rick hansen and he's, just so your listeners know, he's written some wonderful books. Um, one of my favorite ones is Buddha's Brain. Um, he also has a book on hardwiring happiness, uh, a book on resilience. Um, and he has lots of free material and lots of online programs. But what he explains in terms of negativity bias is this is the way our brains are wired. And there's a purpose here. Our brains are wired this way to protect us. So it used to be way back when in the Jurassic age, you know, we learned how to differentiate, um, you know, a cat from a saber-toothed lion. Because if you missed that, you know, that was the end of passing on your, your DNA. But luckily, there aren't that many saber-toothed lions, tigers, bears out there. But that's still how our brains are wired yeah, to we, protect ourselves. We need to see that. Can I interject with an interesting statistic my daughter just presented to me? Go, go ahead, sure. <laughs> that, um, that they added up all the deaths that people have from lions and, and tigers and bears from all around the world and discovered that Freshwater snails kill more people than lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> I think it's so hilarious. Okay, so curious minds need need to know. Tell us how freshwater snails. I, I think probably I was wondering. We've been wondering that too. It was kind of in like a little book of curious things, and I I don't know actually, but I my guess is through bad snails. Just snails gone bad, but. But yeah, yeah, the negative. I don't want to pull you to <laughs> negativity bias. <laughs> Fun facts to know, yeah. So anyway, that is the way our brains are wired. And that's what happens. So part of it is training our brains not to go into that, that rabbit hole. And that's where self-compassion really helps. Yeah. And this, this can be a practice, right? So even if we don't feel worthy, even though our, that inner critic, that mean voice is really strong, it's something we can practice. It's something we can learn, right? Right. And there's so many great techniques about working with that inner critic. We can ask the inner critic just to step back a little, 
we can get curious about the inner critic. Where is it broadcasting from? We could, you know, ask the inner critic to go outside, put its feet up and have a glass of iced tea, <laughs> you know, and give yourself a break. So we don't have to let the inner critic yell at us. And one thing that can really help is to say to the inner critic, yeah, I know that you're trying to help me. I know you're trying to make sure I'm not going to be a slacker and the kids aren't going to be slackers, but don't worry about that. You know, I, I hear you. I know your intentions are good, but let's see if we can chill out a little right now. Yelling at someone never helps. And it, it doesn't really help doesn't. us doesn't no. help ourselves either. And I think that's so important to remember. I mean, so for me, the way I think about it is like that if I, you know, if I'm human and I make a mistake and then I inevitably mess up, I, I try, I'm trying something different. I'm trying some mindfulness thing and I make a mistake. I inevitably mess up and then I, I'm harsh and mean and unkind to myself. I'm going to want to stay in my tiny little box and not try something new and, and not make a mistake again. But if, if I, do something and I make my inevitable mistake and I'm kind to myself, then I can, I'm not afraid to start again. It gives you strength in that way to grow and learn because you're not going to be mean to yourself and put your, you know, put yourself down when you're inevitably human. Exactly. And that's one of the pieces of research around self-compassion that I really like, which is we can tolerate failure better we have more resilience. We're able to say, okay, I tried something new, didn't work, let me tweak it a little bit. And learning to be kind to yourself, like, Hunter, that was a good try. And again, um, going to Sharon Salzberg, who's again, one of my favorite teachers, she has a saying I really like, which is nothing is ever a straight shot. Mm. So just knowing that nothing, it, is going to work on the first try. Okay, let me experiment. And also that's one of the things, a uh, technique we use in cognitive behavioral therapy when you're teaching someone new skills. Like, okay, everything's an experiment. In a science experiment, you try something. It usually doesn't work the first time. Okay, try again. So having that openness to trying and experimenting makes it so much easier, to, you know, to be a parent. So you can say, oh, all right, those Brussels sprouts, Billy, were not good. They were soggy. Let's get on the computer. Let's check our phones. Let's find some other recipes for Brussels sprouts that you might like. Because Brussels sprouts aren't always bad. My, uh, in our house, actually, my daughter asks my husband when he's going to make Brussels sprouts. She loves his Brussels sprouts so much and they, they, they get a little braggy. It's kind of cute. They're like, our friends don't like that many vegetables. But, you know, our, my dad cooks them so yummy that they're like, really, that we like them. <laughs> well, and, you know, that is such a wonderful story because one of the things we talk about is legacy burdens in therapy. You know, so, you know, how beautifully you have shifted your experience because you had such a negative experience of Brussels sprouts. You know, whoever thought that a child of yours would love Brussels sprouts. So I actually think that's a great learning story because you've learned how to shift it. So rather than, you know, the next few generations hate, Brussels sprouts, and who knows why, you've managed to, as we say, do a cognitive reframe. Mm. Like, let's figure out how we can make this work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is so important, reframing things. And, and then, of course, then it all goes back to mindfulness and that clarity of our of thoughts. Like, are, are we aware of what we're thinking? And but you have a lot of incredible practices in your book. And I, before we go, I want to just sort of touch on some of them because I think that you, 
provide a lot of practices that um, bring mindfulness and self-compassion into people's lives in a really simple, accessible ways. And I wondered if you would talk to us a little bit about Soften, Soothe, Allow. That's actually one of my favorite practices in um, the self-compassion literature. And I want to give a shout out um, to Chris Germer, um, as well as Kristen Neff. So Kristen was the person who did the research. Chris Germer is a um, friend of mine for 30 years, and he's a clinician. And he really thought about how to take the research and apply it. And what he does in this soften, soothe, and allow, and I'll guide you through that in like three to five minutes because it's a great practical practice, is he figured out how to combine everything in um, the three-part series of the, the steps of self-compassion. So let me walk you through soften, soothe, and allow. Sure. So let's say um, you're thinking of something that um, was mildly to moderately difficult for you. And if you can share that, I mean, maybe something you could be public with, we could always use. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, so, you know, for me, something that's been moderately, it's not a parenting thing that immediately comes to mind. For me, it's, um, I have a tendency to, I'm not like super systematic. And I actually, this applies to you and I in our conversation, because I have a tendency to sort of miss emails and, um, and inadvertently kind of be rude to people because I haven't gotten back to them. Um, and I feel like sort of guilty and bad about that. Well, just so you know, I certainly didn't expect it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> My feeling is everyone's swamped. So let's work with that, okay? Okay. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners um, can resonate because my feeling right now is everyone's overwhelmed. No one has bandwidth. Um, one of my friends said to me when her kids are younger, when I asked how she was doing, she said, Susan, I am overwhelmed right now. I am broken. This is too much. Okay. So I think that is where we all are. So this is a great practice, probably for everyone listening. Okay. So just start by taking a deep breath and just think, take a moment just to ground. And I'm going to do this in five minutes. Just feeling your body, letting yourself settle. If you like, just tuning into the sensations in your body. perhaps tuning into the sounds in the room, maybe even finding your breath, if that's comfortable for you. And then just think about that experience of feeling like, oh, you're not organized enough. You're spread too thin. You're not responsive enough. I mean, whatever. And then just notice where you're feeling that. And if you don't mind sharing with your listeners where, where you're noticing that in your body. I feel it in my throat, yeah. like right at the top of my chest and my throat. Okay. And one thing that might help is what we call a little soothing touch. So perhaps putting a hand on your neck and throat. Putting a hand. Okay. And then just inviting that to soften. And you may want to say in a really warm, kind, compassionate voice, like, okay, soften. Soften, soften. So here we're responding to the body. And just see if it can soften even a little, even 5%. I think we're at a good 30%. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. And again, 30 is great, but if it's just 
5%, that's helpful. And then check in. You may feel a little agitated. And just can begin to soothe yourself. And just say soothe. 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 And with that, you may just want to say, Hunter, it's okay. You don't have to be perfect. Then see what that's like. Definitely just, a relief to say that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just notice, has, has the self-criticism, has the agitation gone down? Yeah. Yeah. Great. And the final step is just allow. And with that, you know, first we did um, the body, then we went to the emotions. Now we're doing the cognition. And just allow things to be as they are. Okay. You're not the most organized person in the world, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know, it's all right. And just giving yourself permission to be as you are, not feeling like you need to change that. And just see what that's like, allowing yourself to be as you are. Feels good. Yeah. And what's really wonderful here is when we allow ourselves to be as we are, it's a lot easier to allow other people to be as they are and to have some compassion for them. Oh, you know, maybe they're having a hard day. Maybe they have low bandwidth. Maybe they're hungry, tired, angry too. Mm-hmm. You know, so then you're just kind to them rather than yelling. Yeah. Yeah, so, but we, we cannot give what we do not have. Exactly. We need that inside. Yeah. And then once you give it to yourself, it's so much easier to give it to others, to give it to your kids, your partner, your friends. So that, that <laughs> is self-compassion in a nutshell thank no. you susan you guys might be able to hear the door because my 10 year old is coming in i'm waving her away <laughs> tell her i'm waving to her she's <laughs> tell her i say welcome okay <laughs> um thank you susan uh this your your whole book is wonderful the work you've done is really I think it's full of, I just want to tell the listener that it's full of stories. It's full of very specific instances of stories of people who've come to you. And I think that, and, and it's full of stories and full of practices. And I think both the combination of these stories and practices will really um, humanize the experience of parenting and the difficulty of parenting. And the, you know, the first chapter is why is it so hard or, or parenting is overwhelming. And, um, and I, I can, can't, you know, I have, I highly recommend it. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And, um, and where can people find out more about you, Susan? So um, I have a website, Dr. Susan Pollock, um, and on that website, I have all sorts of articles and essays. I've been a blogger for Psychology Today. I've also done a lot of podcasts. So basically, whatever I produce is, is on the website. All right, so go check it out. Tell um, 
Dr. Pollack, that uh, that you heard her here, and I I really thank you for spending taking the time to spend with us and sharing your wisdom and sharing your voice, and helping me work through my <laughs> frustration of my own <laughs> disorganization and and just sharing this these beautiful practices of self compassion. I, I don't think it's I think it's something we can't talk about enough. So thank you, thank you so much. Well, and especially now, I think we're all under so much stress that. We really need it. It makes a difference. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got a lot out of that episode. I love that whole saying, if you lose it, you can use it. So cool, right? I love that. Hey, before you go, uh, if you're interested, remember I have just two spots left in my Mindful Parenting Teacher Training Program, and it's for you to bring the eight sessions of the Mindful Parenting course to your community. It's such a cool program because it's win, win, win. You really deepen and master the concepts. You share it with your community and uh, you can do earn money doing something you love. So to learn more about it, go to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash teach. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash teach. And I'm just wishing you an amazing week. Um, I've been reading some of those um, some of those reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. I love this community. And, and just the action that's happening in the Mindful Mama Facebook group is amazing. Lots of conversation happening there, really supportive community. So you can, of course, learn more about that and all the podcasts and everything that's going on at mindfulmamamentor.com. And uh, yeah, you know, practice some self-compassion this week. If that voice in your head is mean, that's okay. You can turn it around. This is something that can be learned and practiced, and I know you can do it. Um, I want to hear about it. I want to hear what your takeaways are. Let me know. And uh, yeah, I'm just wishing you some peace, some joy, some, you know, put that hand to the heart this week and, you know, talk to yourself like you would a good friend. It really makes a huge difference, I promise. And it's it'll help you become a better parent for sure. So go for it. You can do it. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for listening. Namaste.